Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me once more to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Hear now the Word of the Living God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among the peoples. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are His sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and all the peoples with His truth. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray now and ask the Lord's aid and blessing on His word. Now, O Lord, we pray that even now, by Your Spirit, You would Incline our hearts to hear, give our minds the ability to focus for a few moments, fix our gaze upon the triune God who is greatly to be praised, and may the fields of our hearts rejoice. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes in worship, we utilize Psalm 96, but we use many other psalms in what is called the call to worship, that first reading of Scripture, the first word of God in the gathering of His people, where He calls His people to worship His name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Psalm 96 is one of those psalms that is clearly a call to worship. This psalm about worship, if you follow it closely, really has three sections. And each of these sections begins with a kind of command. Look at verse 1 through 3. The command that we are given there is to sing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. But then look down at verses 7 through 9. There we are told that we are to give. Give or ascribe something to our God. Sing to the Lord, verses 1 through 3. Give to the Lord certain things. Sandwiched in the middle in verses 4 through 6, there is this discussion of why God is to be praised. But then in verse 10, a third kind of command occurs. Say. Say among the nations. 
So verse 1, we are to sing and information follows. Verse 7, we are to give to the Lord glory or ascribe glory to the Lord. And then in verse 10, a third command, we are to say certain things to the nations. These three categories help us as we consider worship this evening. Now this particular psalm speaks of worship in a corporate context. In fact, if you were to turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 and following, you would see almost verbatim the same exact psalm. This psalm was used there in 1 Chronicles when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. This is a psalm of worship for the covenant people of God. But it's a psalm that was written to the Old Testament, the old covenant people of God, But if you read closely, toward the end of the psalm, you will see that Gentiles are included. In fact, in verses 1 through 9, there is the sense in which there is instruction for worship. But verses 10 and following seem to move worship almost, if you will, into a kind of evangelism or proclamation to the world. Another way to divide this psalm is that verses 1 through 6 are for the old covenant people of God. But if you look closely in verse 7, there is a shift in the audience. Who is told to give glory to the Lord? The families of the peoples. As we'll see in just a few moments, this is the Gentiles. This is the nations of the earth. So three different commands, two different peoples, with the goal that all peoples worship the living God. So let's walk through these three sections of command. Verses 1 through 3, we begin with the command to sing. Sing. The Hebrew word there means, well, sing. (laughs) It means sing. It means to open your mouth and let words and melodies of praise come forth. This word is used over 30 times in the book of Psalms. Singing biblically, is a large part of corporate worship. You know, brothers and sisters, I praise the Lord that I don't really have to do any corrective work here, but in many churches across this nation and across this globe today, the thought is that worship is really just the sermon. But actually, we're commanded to sing. We're commanded to observe the sacraments. We're commanded to pray, to read the Scriptures, and for the Word of Christ to be preached. But we're commanded to sing. Over and over and over again, in the Old and the New Testament, we are commanded to sing. It is a large part of corporate worship. And I would suggest to you that when you think of preparing for worship on the Lord's Day throughout the week, in addition to praying for the preacher, praying for your own hearts to receive the Word, you ought to be praying that God would tune your hearts to sing His praise. Lord, give me what I need by your Spirit to actually accomplish, even imperfectly, the many commands to sing your praise. Now notice, verse 1 says, O sing to the Lord a new song. Now I don't think that it's incorrect to assume that part of what is happening here is that we are invited to sing new words to God. But I think probably most particularly what is happening in this phrase is not, oh, sing to the Lord every time you sing a new kind of lyric, but rather, sing to the Lord again 
in response to a new experience of his grace. Every day the living God has cared for you. His providential hand has guided to you. So sing a new song today. I don't think that we should use this verse as a proof text for always needing to write new hymns. There's nothing wrong with new hymns. There's nothing wrong with old hymns. But here we're told to sing all of the time. Sing a new song to the Lord. But notice we sing to God and about God. But we also sing to others about God. Notice how the psalmist renders this. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. When we sing to the living God, we bless his name. But we also proclaim his truth, his plan of salvation, his attributes to others. The New Testament will pick up on this theme when we are seen as instructing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a sense in which our singing is a part of the teaching ministry of the church. Not everyone is an elder, but if you're a believer who can sing, you are a kind of preacher, lowercase p. We sing to God, we bless his name, but we tell of his salvation. And I just have to point out for you the underlying Hebrew word here. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation. The Hebrew word underlying that English word salvation is the word Yeshua, which simply means salvation. But of course we know that our Savior would take on the name Yeshua, Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. We tell of his salvation, but we declare his glory. That word could be translated his honor, his majesty, the weight of his name. Brothers and sisters, we need to be a people who sing wholeheartedly unto God and wholeheartedly about God. Let's not do this carelessly. Let's seek to consider that we are following a command of Holy Scripture from of old. To sing. It's the first of three commands related to worship in this particular psalm. We have the ability to sing through psalm, through hymn, through spiritual song, the glories of our God and King. We've seen some of the practical expressions of worship thus far in this psalm. But the next few verses speak to some of the reasons why we worship. I don't know if you've noticed that connection. Verses 1 through 3, sing. Now in verses 4 through 6, here's why. Many of the Psalms are like that. Psalm 100 is like that. For why? The Lord our God is good. That's why we sing His praise. Well, here in Psalm 96, verse 4, it says this. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. So let's look at some of the reasons then. Secondly, why we sing, why we worship. Look at verse 4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is feared above all gods. We worship firstly because God is the greatest thing. Now, when we say that God is the greatest thing, we don't mean that He is just the greatest of all things. He is in a category all of His own. He is distinct 
as creator. All other things are creaturely. But in terms of what exists and in terms of being, God is great and greatly to be praised. Meaning, God is worthy to be praised. We're commanded to sing because our God is worthy. But in verse 5, we see another reason why we worship. Look there. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. We worship God because He alone is God. There are no other gods. Not only is He great, not only is He worthy of praise, is the greatest thing, but He alone is God. There are no other gods. Now, there is a play on words here in the underlying Hebrew text. Let me just give these to you. Some of you love languages. Perhaps some of you want to avoid them. But there's a play on words that we can't really see in the English translation. Verse 5 says, For all the gods, Elohim, of the peoples are idols. Elohim. Two words that are very, very similar on purpose to make a point. We do that in English poetry and singing as well, don't we? Sometimes we bring words together that rhyme in order to emphasize a particular point, to make something memorable. Here the writer is saying, for the Elohim of the peoples are Elilim. They're worthless idols. And brothers and sisters, this is a reminder for us. Every time that we worship the true and living God, there's a sense in which it ought to cause us, with repentance in mind, to remember that all of the things that we have worshipped, even the week before, are but worthless idols. They are elilim. They're not worthy of our worship, our pride, our money, our stuff, the things of this world. So often we forget that Christians can indeed have in their hearts idols. We read the Old Testament, and every time we see the word idols, we think, oh, stone, statue, wood, things you bow down to. But do you remember the very last verse of 1 John? My little children, keep yourself from idols. Christians are told to keep themselves from idols. Yes, the stone and statues that we see carved by those around us. Just drive down Todd's Lane for a mile or two, and on both right and left, you will see carved statues that are idols. But you don't have to drive that far. You can look inside my heart. I can look inside your heart and see, as it were, temporary idols, things that we lift up that we worship. Our worship is a reminder that God alone is the true and living God. So some reasons why we worship, verse 4, because God is the greatest thing. Verse 5, because He alone is God. But then in verse 6, we worship God because of His nature. Look at verse 6. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are His sanctuary. Notice the descriptors of our God. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are His sanctuary sanctuary we worship God because of his nature when we take up the Psalter or the hymn book or the bulletin in our hands on Lord's Day gatherings to sing the praise of God it would behoove us it would be proper for us to take a few moments in preparation not only for the Prayers of the preaching of the Word. Not only that we may rightly discern the Lord's body in the Lord's Supper, 
but that we may rightly worship him through our singing. Lord, help me to worship you, remembering that you are the greatest thing. My worship this day, then, Lord, will be, as it were, a recalibration of my heart and mind for the week ahead. Every Lord's Day, then, Lord, is an opportunity for me to be recalibrated, to remember, wait a minute, I sing praises to the only God, the only one who is worthy. The things that I have sung lesser praise songs to this week must be put down. Because He alone is a God whose sanctuary is strength and beauty. He alone made the heavens. Why worship the heavens when I can worship the one who made the heavens? So the first command is to sing. And we're told why. Brothers and sisters, let us be, as we so often are growing to be, a singing people. But we get another command in verse 7, and that is the command to give. Some translations render it ascribe. Either one is a good translation. But in addition to a second command, we see a shift in the target audience. In verses 1 through 6, you really get a picture of the privileges of an Israelite in the sanctuary of God. Again, this psalm was used by the Old Covenant people in the worship of which David was king over that period of time. But here in verse 7, Gentiles are invited. I would argue with prophetic applications to the church and to the New Covenant. Gentiles are invited. Look there at verse 7. Give to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Now you may say, well, why wouldn't this just be families of the Jewish peoples? But if you keep reading, you're going to see very particular terms used. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations. The Hebrew word there is goyim. In fact, today, even to this day, it is a word that is often used by Jewish individuals to refer to those who are not Jewish. Now, in the old covenant praise of God, his covenant people, there is this call, there is this cry to the nations to join in the worship of the living God. Give, which means simply to acknowledge, to recognize. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Now the Gentiles, that's us, are invited to come into this worship of God. But notice verse 8, give to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. Using old covenant language, now Gentiles are pictured as also coming into his courts. Now brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do if you've read your Old Testament, if you know history, that Gentiles, the families of the peoples, could not come into all of the courts that Jewish people could come to in the temple. Here, we see this picture that Jews and Gentiles are called to come and to worship. And again, using Old Covenant language, bring an offering and come into His courts. There's a picture, a prophetic picture of what would come soon through the coming of Christ when Christ, who is the temple, would be the place without a dividing wall, Ephesians 2, where Jew and Gentile alike would come and worship the triune God. 
But it's not until verse 9 that the Hebrew word for worship is actually used. Most English translations pick it up, do they not? Look at verse 9. Oh, worship the Lord. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, what does it mean to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness? Well, that word worship literally means to bow down, to prostrate oneself before that which is worshipped. Bow down in the presence of the Lord. Bow down in your hearts. What does it mean to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness? Well, this could be a kind of picture for the idea of worshiping the Lord in holy attire. Put on the holy clothing that the Lord grants. And in beautiful holiness, worship Him. Brothers and sisters, if we're called to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, we are anything but holy in our own strength. Where do we get this so-called holy attire This beauty that shows off a kind of holiness. Well, you know, it's only in Christ that it is found. It's only in Christ that His blood cleanses us from all of our sins and makes us able to worship. Brothers and sisters, it is not too much of a stretch to say that you were not simply saved so that you wouldn't go to hell. You were saved so that you would worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God saved you by Christ so that you may be a worshiper. This is a regular theme of the Psalms. Oh, worship the Lord, as it were, showing off holy beauty, holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. The word tremble could refer to a kind of dance. Certainly means a heart posture. For before the Lord we recognize who He is. What He's done. The worthiness of His name. So thus far, what have we seen? In verses 1 through 3, we're told to sing. Verses 4 through 6, we're told why. Verses 7 through 9, with a new audience brought in, the people are told to do what? Give to the Lord glory and strength. Say to God, God, this is who you are. We bring you our glory. We come into your courts, readied by your own work. But then, in verse 10, there is another kind of shift, isn't there? Look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now look closely, brothers and sisters. This is where we could say that our worship becomes evangelistic because in verses 7 through 9 the audience has already shifted hasn't it to the gentiles again verse 7 oh families of the peoples now here those same families of the peoples are told to say among the nations the gentiles gentiles say among the gentiles what are we to say the lord reigns In the context already of Gentiles, the picture is this kind of evangelistic component to the worship of the people of God. Let me just give you two points of application here. Firstly, the worship that happens in this room as we praise the living God, yes, ought to most literally move outside these walls to the nations around us. 
We ought to be a people who sing his praise on Sunday and tell of his praise and worthiness to be praised Monday through Saturday. But there is another perhaps subtle implication of this text. The greatest way that we preach to the world in the face of persecution, in the face of its sin, is through our worshiping of the living God. It would be an error to say that the true mission of the church is what happens Monday through Saturday. Rather, we need to invert that. What we do on the Lord's Day gathering, on the Sabbath day, on the gathering of His people, is to praise His name. That is the thing for which we were saved. He has clothed us in holy attire that we may sing His praise. We worship in this place and then we go out. And if you're wondering what our posture to the living world should be in the face of sin and brokenness, it should be proper worship first. What are we going to do when we have ungodly rulers? We sing his praise. What do we do when the world wants to invert sexuality and gender? We sing his praise. What do we do when they persecute us? We sing his praise praise you see in in many facets of christianity today the question is what do we do in the midst of the world well i don't know all of what we do but i know that the first thing that we're told to do is one day in seven sing his praise and some of us will be killed for doing it maybe not those of us in this room but the us of the churches all across this globe Say to the nation, the Lord reigns. That is so easy to say in the midst of a revival. It's less easy to say when missiles are flying overhead. Is the Lord's name worthy to be praised? Are his courts worthy to be entered? Is his name, verse 8, due glory when the persecution comes? Our posture is to the lost and dying world should first be our God reigns. He is worthy to be praised. We will sing His praise. And then, let that fuel us to go out to the nations. Verse 10, say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Gentiles, say to the Gentiles. Families of the people, say to the families of the people, the Lord reigns. Give them, as it were, a crash course in worship, and see as the Lord by His Spirit regenerates some of them. Well, the rest of the psalm, verses 11 through 13, describes all the earth worshiping God. Notice quickly with me there, verse 11. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Now, we could simply look at this as let the sky and let the ground worship God. But I think there's more going on here. Let the creatures of heaven worship God. And let the creatures of the earth worship God. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it is everywhere in the hymnody of Reformed worship. There is this regular impulse to remind us in our hymnody that the saints above who have gone to be with Christ praise His name even now. 
that the angels of heaven praise his name, that the martyrs who have gone before us praise his name, that the prophets and the apostles, they praise his name, and yet we here on earth praise his name. And the first time you hear that, you think to yourself, that seems a little strange because we're very centered in where we are. We are the ones who praise his name. But we forget, some of us who sat in these chairs two, three, four years ago are with Christ now. And the kind of worship that they are giving God in heaven is something that we have yet to experience. But there is a glory about the victorious church praising His name. About the angels, thousands upon thousands, Ten thousands upon ten thousands praising His name. And this heavenly worship is the exact same worship that verses 1 through 10 says Jew and Gentile alike are brought into. Years ago, we had a series through the book of the Revelation and a phrase that was regularly used during that series became a part of our church. And that is that we, when we gather on the Lord's Day, as it were, are worshiping on the outskirts of heaven's praise. That there is the triune God. There is the Lamb. There is these creatures, as it were, of the book of the Revelation. There are the angels. There are the saints. They are all gathered. And we, just beyond the veil, as it were, gather together to praise His name. Our lost brothers and sisters to death. Those who've gone on, we still have mystic sweet communion with them in Christ. And there is a unison of our voices with the deceased saints. The heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. But then, Images of creation are used. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful. Now, for years, I took that as simply, hey, we're called to worship and so is creation. The sea and the fields and the trees, the trees that clap their hands, it's just a sign under general revelation that all things that God has made are really an emblem that show off His glory. And that is true. But there are commentators of old who would say that in verse 12 when it says let the field be joyful what is really referenced here is the field of the church for instance let me just read to you one example this is John Gill commenting on verse 12 not the field of the world but of the church separated from others by distinguishing grace the peculiar property of Christ cultivated and mannered by his spirit and grace and abounding with the fruits and flowers thereof, of a wilderness becoming a fruitful field, and for that reason should rejoice, even with joy and singing. So certainly, brothers and sisters, there are fields right around us. I love the way that our church looks. Fields right around us. And those fields, just simply existing, yes, are a sign that says there is a Creator who made these things who is worthy of worship. But I think all throughout the Bible, this image of a field is used, is it not? For kinds of people, let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for He is coming. Now, brothers and sisters, before we close, we've seen the three commands. We've seen the command to sing, to give, and to say. We've been given some reasons why. But at the end of this 
psalm, in addition to the Gentiles telling the nations to worship God, we're given, as it were, one final picture of worship. Verse 13, for he is coming. Notice the preparatory aspect in our worship. Every time we sing praises to the true and living God, there is a sense in which we are worshiping Him, as it were, verses 4 through 6, for the reasons listed there, because He's worthy, He's the only God, because of His nature and His attributes. There's a sense in which our worship has a palpable rhythm to it. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And this is why I say, in the face of all the unrighteousness of the nations, one of the boldest things that the church does is worship the living God amongst people who hate Him. Verse 13, notice the rhythm. For He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. Now why would we end a psalm pointing to the coming of our God? Well, of course, in Psalm 96, there was every hope that Messiah would come. That God's salvation, God's Yeshua would come. Well, He has come. He's coming again. And every time that we gather together to worship, it is as if we are saying God is worthy to be worshipped. We here on earth ought to be glad. The saints and the angels above are worshiping God. They are seeing Christ. And we here on earth, with every note that we sing, with every gathering of Christ's people, we are proclaiming to the world not only that God is worthy, but that Christ is coming. Whatever the lyric of our psalm or hymnody is that day, our worship is in a preparation. It's anticipating the coming Christ. So I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that in Psalm 96, the people of God are called to worship. They're called to worship for a particular group of reasons. Their worship is a kind of worship that is, as it were, evangelistic in the face of a lost and dying world. And their worship constantly has a drumbeat that points us to the future. Listen. Should the Lord tarry, over the next few decades, there will be a change. A change in this room. Yes, some of us will move on to other places in this world, other churches. But some of us will pass away. And we will join that great group of saints above singing the praises of the Lamb. But the drumbeat of time will continue to be the same. Christ's church will sing His praise here. Christ's church above will sing His praise there. And should the Lord tarry long enough, and a hundred years from now, no one fills this room who currently is here now. And there is a new generation of people. We will all be with Christ in the heavens rejoicing. And they will be here by His grace, singing His praise, and they will be singing the praise according to the same drumbeat. He's coming. He's coming. And can you imagine, just imagine the sweet harmony the very first time those two groups of voices join together in the same choir. 
the saints above who will be coming with Christ, and the saints below who will be gathered together by the angels sent out to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth, singing together with not a flat or sharp note among us. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that when we are given the call to worship of Scripture, there is a great amount of truth behind the call to worship His name. We worship Him because of who He is. We worship Him because the nations must be told. And we worship Him in anticipation of what is to come. Let's pray. Living God, tune our hearts to sing Thy praise. We ask that every time we hear a call to worship, it would ready us to sing the praises of the living God. It would remind us that our chief purpose as a church in the face of a lost and dying world is to be a beacon of truth and worship. That we may be a people Monday through Saturday who carry that worship out to the nations. We sing your praise on Sunday and then we declare your praise Monday through Saturday. We beseech people to come in by the blood of the Lamb and join in the praise, reminding them that Christ is coming soon. Lord, may every note we sing, may every lyric we lift to you be a reminder that the long-expected Jesus is coming. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.